ask you to consider three scenarios with me. And you're going to answer the question, what should they do? All right, scenario number one, a college student is on a choir trip in Europe. Uh, her choir is singing at a Catholic cathedral. And as part of the worship service, the choir is invited to participate in communion. What should this Christian young lady do? Should she participate? Scenario number two, uh, one of my family members is a police officer. His barracks was involved with the uh, Jaffa Shriners, uh, who primarily raise money for a network of children's hospitals all over the country. And he was encouraged to become a member of the Shriners. Um, during the initial membership sessions, he started to feel uncomfortable and uh, he was hearing terms like, this is the Jaffa Temple. It's a mystic shrine. Uh, the leader was called the illustrious potentate. There was a high priest. All of the officers were in robes, and uh, they were standing before what was called an altar. The members participated in various rituals and uh, took oaths. So he called me and asked me what I thought. And he said, this is weird, but ultimately it's just for the children's hospitals, right? Should he become a member? Scenario number three. Uh, one of the members of our church called this week and said that um, his coworker is getting married. His coworker is a Hindu. And the wedding is going to be a traditional Hindu ceremony. And he asked me whether he and his wife should go or not. What should he do? Well, each of these three scenarios is complicated by the fact that it involves some type of religious association, right? So it wasn't just a choir trip, it wasn't just singing, it ended up being a Catholic mass. It wasn't just for the children's hospital, it had something to do with some mystic temple and the illustrious potentate. Uh, this is not just a wedding, but there are potential Hindu rituals involved. So situations, everyday situations like this get complicated when there are religious associations. Well, the Christians in Corinth faced those kinds of conundrums as well. Normal, everyday events entangled in false religion, in pagan worship at the local temples. Our sermon text is in a portion of Paul's letter where he's writing to the Corinthians and he is addressing four common scenarios that involve food and false idols. Take your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This section is in 8 through 10. It actually finishes in 11.1. But these four common scenarios that involve food and false religion, Paul is taking up with the church at Corinth there. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, 
1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and you'll notice that he's talking about food offered to idols. Do you see that? Chapter 8, verse 1. Look in verse 10 of chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 10, they're eating meals at the local idol's temple. So it's not just the food, but it's a meal at the temple. Then look over at chapter 10, verse 25, and you'll notice that some of the idol food is being sold in the local markets. And then two more scenarios in chapter 10 in which an unbelieving neighbor or coworker invites you to dinner. In verse 27, they say nothing about the source or the significance of the food. And then look in verse 28 of chapter 10, they announce this has been offered in sacrifice. So Paul takes these four common scenarios about food and false religion, the, the normal kind of very common things that you would deal with as a Christian in Corinth, and they're asking the question, what should we do? The Christians there in Corinth at that time thought that they had the freedom to eat this idol food and attend these sacrificial feasts because idols are nothing. It's just food. But in chapter 8 through 10, what we've been discovering is that Paul explains that they should not eat idol food. They should not attend temple meals. And he comes at it from five different angles, sometimes saying it very blatantly, sometimes suggesting good reasons why they should willingly lay this aside. Paul actually makes five points in this section, and we've been taking them up in five different sermons. In chapter 8, Paul says, you should love your weaker brothers. Those people who used to be pagan worshipers, you should love your weaker brothers more than your freedom. In chapter 9, he said, you should lay aside your freedom for the sake of our gospel mission. Last week at the beginning of chapter 10, he said to the church at Corinth, be careful that your freedom doesn't lead you into sin. In verse 14 through 22, he will say, number four, be sure that your freedom isn't participation in false religion. And then his fifth point at the end of chapter 10, he tells them that sometimes you're just going to have to consider the situation, consider the circumstances, and in those situations, then govern your freedom by the good of others and the glory of God. We're actually on Paul's point number four today. Paul explains, and I'll suggest, in no uncertain terms. Do not eat sacrificial meals at the temple because you would be participating in idolatry. Don't do it. 
So let's read our sermon text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through 22. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's God's word. That'll end the reading of God's word for today. Paul's main point in this particular section, verse 14 through 22, is do not eat sacrificial meals at the temple because you're participating in idolatry. And notice from the structure of the text, how Paul makes his point. In verse 14, he gives an exhortation. Flee from idolatry. Then in verse 15 through 17, he gives an explanation using Christian communion as the basis. Then in verse 18, he gives an, amp, uh, an example from Israel. And then in verse 19 through 22, he goes back to exhorting them to flee from idolatry. So exhortation, explanation, example, and then exhortation again. So we're going to look at each one of those four things individually this morning. And as we do, my prayer is that your faith in Jesus Christ will be strengthened so that you will never want to participate in any form of false religion. First of all, verse 14, we see Paul gives a clear exhortation to flee from idolatry. Do you see that? Read it with me out loud if you would. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. These are no uncertain terms, are they? Well, he's not beating around the bush. He's not unclear. He says, what you're about to do is idolatry, run, flee, have nothing to do with it. Now, the scenario here that Paul has in mind is like that one of chapter 8, verse 10, where the Christians are eating a meal in the idol's temple. And so, verse 20, 
the pagans have made a sacrifice to their god. And we understand in that culture, in ancient Corinth, that the local temples uh, would host events to celebrate their gods. Gods like Aphrodite, Athena, the legendary temple of Apollo that you see there on that screen. And according to the Archaeological Museum of Ancient Corinth, the ceremonies and festivals included music, processions, theatrical and athletic competitions, ceremonial events, and of course, they say, offerings to the gods, which then would involve the participation of all of the people in the idol food. Three times in this small section, Paul forbids the Christians from eating sacrificial meals because they are idolatry. Verse 14, flee from it. Look at verse 20. I do not want you to participate. Look at verse 20. Um, pardon me, verse 21, two times. You cannot drink that cup and the Lord's cup. Eat at that table and the Lord's table. But it as is, is as if the Corinthians just don't get it. This was so common in their culture that it was foreign to think that they wouldn't be able to participate in these local festivals. Why can't we eat at the temple? Why is this idolatry? So Paul answers their question by explaining it based on something that the church understands. Our covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. So look in verse 15 through 17. Paul uses the Lord's Supper to explain what's going on at the local temple and why they can't be involved in it. Verse 15 through 17, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Just like we celebrate the gospel of Christ through communion, when you attend these temple meals, you are participating in their Lord's Supper, in their sacrificial meal. And what's the key word here? Five times participation. Two times in verse 16, participation. One time in verse 17, one in 18, one in verse 20. The key word is that eating a sacrificial meal is not just eating food. It's participating with the one being honored. Let me say that again. 
eating a sacrificial meal is not just eating food. It's participating with the one being honored. The cup that we bless, is it not participating in the blood of Christ? The bread, when we break it and eat it, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Now, this word participation is a word that you have probably heard preachers pronounce lots of different times. From the Greek, it's the word koinonia. What's the word koinonia mean? It means fellowship. It means sharing with. So you could read it this way. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not fellowshipping with the blood of Christ? Is it not fellowshipping in the body of Christ? Are we not sharing in these things? Communing with these things? And what Paul's saying here is that in communion, the bread is really participating with the body of Christ. And it's really participating with the blood of Christ. And when you go there to their sacrificial meal, then you are participating with their lower L, Lord. You can see the logic. He'll get to that in just a moment when he gets down to verse 19. But for right now, even though Paul is not teaching us about the Lord's Supper here, he's just using it as an example. Man, that's rich, isn't it? I mean, just to think about what the Lord's Supper really is as participation with the one being honored, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. The church has been celebrating the Lord's Supper ever since Jesus instituted it the night before he was betrayed. And all of the reformers of the church have loved, loved, loved the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther said, This bread is a comfort for those sorrowing, a healing for the sick, life for the dying, food for the hungry, and a rich treasure for all the poor and needy. Zwingli said, by this commemoration, all the benefits which God has displayed in his son are called to mind. And by the signs themselves, the bread and the wine, Christ himself is as it were set before our eyes so that not merely with ear, but with eye and palate we see and taste that Christ whom the soul bears within itself and with whom it rejoices. John Calvin called the Lord's Supper a spiritual banquet. Menno Simmons, or Simons, however you pronounce that, declared, Oh, the delightful assembly and, and Christian marriage feast where many hungry consciences are fed with the heavenly bread of the divine word and the wine of the Holy Spirit, and where the peaceful, joyous souls sing and play before the Lord. William Tyndale, about the Lord's Supper, said, It's the spiritual food and meat for our souls. Well, even though all of the Reformers loved the Lord's Supper, 
they disagreed and fought over it viciously. <laughs> oh my, I had a time this week reading about, especially how Luther and Zwingli fought tooth and nail over the Lord's Supper. And that is for good reason. Because good Christians are trying to figure out, what does Paul mean here? What did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? Roman Catholicism teaches that the bread and the wine becomes the literal, actual body of Jesus. It's a doctrine called transubstantiation. When the priest prays and announces, when the bell rings, at that moment, Jesus comes down, the bread and the wine are transformed into his literal body and blood. Well, Good Baptists, like the one that I grew up under for many, many years, we ran as far away as, from that as we could. We said, no, 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 that's, that's not true. And if, and if the Catholics think that it's, you know, it's transubstantiation, the literal body of Christ, then, then what we do is we run way over here to the other side and we say, no, no, this is just a memorial. Jesus didn't say this is my body, meaning this is actually my body. When, when Jesus stood there among the thousands that day that Caleb read about, and he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He wasn't meaning come up here, take a bite out of my arm. It was obvious. He's, he's speaking in metaphor or in signs. So we, you know, good Baptists, especially, especially in the 20th and 21st century here, we have run the other direction and we make this purely, merely, simply a memorial. This is something for us to remember what Jesus did. Well, friends, our reformers are very helpful here because they're getting us back to, rather than the pendulum swing, from false to false, back to what the Bible says here. What does Paul say about the Lord's Supper? The cup of blessing, meaning that cup probably that Jesus blessed on that night, that cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, not merely a memorial? Not just remember this like you remember something that happened this past week. But it's remembering as in entering into it in a spiritual participation. And so rather than a literal presence or a mere memorial, we follow guys like John Calvin who describe the, the Lord's Supper as spiritual participation. Key word, spiritual participation. He called it, quote, True participation in Christ, spiritual eating, meaning that by faith believers partake of the body and blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who pours the life of Christ into them and it is received not by the mouth 
but by our faith. In 1689, London Baptist Confession of Faith talks about the Lord's Supper this way. The Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death and confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, to be bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. The 1689 continues, Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of the believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Do you see the spiritual participation rather than the physical participation or the mere memorial? Physical participation, <laughs> Zwingli accused Luther, who, by the way, really argued, he disagreed with the Catholics over transubstantiation, but Martin Luther held that this really is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Zwingli said, you're a cannibal. <laughs> Zwingli probably swung a little too far this way himself. The biblical middle ground that we see here, taught by Paul, is that there is a real, true participation. Not physical, not purely mental, but spiritually by faith. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. Is that how you come to the Lord's table? Or is yours that flat, merely cognitive remembrance of what Jesus did? Or do you, as Calvin encouraged, lay hold of Christ by faith and spiritually eat and partake in his body and blood? When Paul explains to the Corinthians and to us what the Lord's Supper really is, first of all, he says it's this. It's not just eating food. It's participating with the one being honored. Number two, 
verse 17. It's not only participating with the one being honored, but it is uniting with that community. Look at verse 17. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul says, think about what you all do there at Corinth and here in Winchester when you observe the Lord's Supper. You participate with Christ spiritually and unite with one another. The, the bread symbolizes the one loaf broken and distributed symbolizes that we are all one in Christ. There's vertical union, united with Christ by faith. And there is horizontal union, united with one another in Christ. Menno Simmons said, Just as natural bread is made of many grains, pulverized by the milk, kneaded with water, and baked by the heat of the fire, so is the church of Christ, made up of true believers, broken in their hearts by the divine word, baptized with the water of the Holy Spirit and with the fire of pure, unfeigned love made into one body. Paul says in verse 17 that what happens in our communion is we unite with one another. And when you go to the local temple... You're not only participating with their Lord, but you are uniting with that community. His explanation on the basis of Christian com communion. Verse 18. And what Paul does next is he gives an example. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So he, he not only uses communion to explain this to them, but then he says, think about Israel. He uses them as, as an example. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, there's the word again, in the altar? Now many take this as a positive example. For example... Uh, when the Israelites brought sacrifices to the tabernacle or to the temple, then some of that offering was burned up. Some of it was given to the priests to take care of their families. And then the rest of it was sent home with the family to be eaten as food. And so what we see there is that everyone was involved with the offering. The people who brought it, brought it to the Lord, the Lord received this offering, the priests received the offering from the altar, and the families took some home. All those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do you see how that's happening? There you go. It's a positive. But I don't take it as a positive example. And let me just give you two quick reasons why. In my, in my opinion, verse 18 should be taken as a negative example. Because in verse 1 through 13, do you remember last week? Paul kept telling them, remember Israel. And then he gave four negative examples about how Israel fell into sin in the wilderness. 
Now, verse 14 comes right after that. Same pen, same breath, same author. He doesn't change, in my opinion, from four negative examples to one really shining example. I think he's using a negative example here, and he's fortifying his exhortation. Don't be involved in these sacrificial meals because you remember Israel. They were participating in idolatrous meals as well. Ah, now when in the world did Israel do that? Well, you can look a number of places, but I think, along with some of the commentators that I read this week, that Paul has in mind here Deuteronomy 32. Let me just read a portion of that. Listen to the parallels between what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10 and what Deuteronomy 32 said. In the wilderness, Israel stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. I'm, I'm reading Deuteronomy 32. Uh, verse 16 through 18. Israel stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that they had come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded. And you were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Did you see parallels? Three significant parallels uh, between Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Corinthians 10 here. God is stirred to jealousy. Paul ends with that in just a moment. Israel's sacrificing to false gods who are actually demons. He's going to get to that in just a moment. And then the writer of Deuteronomy says that these gods were no gods. And Paul is about to say the same thing. So in my opinion, verse 18 is a negative example of Israel practicing idolatry in the wilderness, sacrificing to demons when they shouldn't be, and stirring God up to jealousy. And Paul says, you're about to f follow your forefathers in the same steps of sin. Which sets up verse 19 through 22. 19 through 22. He ends with an exhortation. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice... They offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Strong exhortation, do you agree? This is not a gray area, friend. Paul says, do not eat sacrificial meals. Why? Because you're participating with demons. Three reasons, Paul, pardon me, three reasons Christians should not participate in sacrificial meals here in verse 19 through 21. First of all, because you would be participating with demons. That's verse 19 and 20. 
And Paul knows that he might sound inconsistent. All along, he's agreed with them. Idols are nothing. You're right. It's just meat. But there's something more going on here. This is not just about the children's hospital. Joining this particular group has all kinds of religious associations involved that isn't gospel Christ. What you would be doing by going to the temple meals is you would be participating with demons. Paul says, am I saying that idols are anything and that, that, uh, that the food is anything? No. Idols are nothing. The food is nothing. But you know what's something? Pagan sacrifice is something. That's real. And they are sacrificing to demons. And guess what? Demons are real. Idols, nothing. This meat, it's just meat. But what they're doing by sacrificing to these gods is real. I don't want you to participate, share, commune, fellowship with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Why can't we participate in the sacrificial meals? Number two, because you would be unfaithful to Christ. You can't do both. Now, that was very foreign to the, to the Corinthians, right? I mean, because the Greco-Roman world was polytheistic. That means that they had all kinds of gods, gods for everywhere, gods for everyone. And it would have been very natural to join your friends in their religious rituals. But the gospel forms a union between the believer and Christ that is exclusive. That's why in the Old Testament, idolatry was called, fill in the blank, adultery. Christian, if you go to the local temple and sit down at their table and drink their cup, you're being unfaithful. I, not just idolatrous, but adulterous to your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do that. Third reason Christians cannot participate in sacrificial meals. Not only are you participating with demons and unfaithful to Christ, but because you will provoke the Lord to jealousy. Look at verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the command to flee idolatry is capped off with a warning in verse 22 about God's jealousy. Now, isn't that interesting? I thought David Garland made an excellent point this week in my reading. He said this, Notice that Paul does not warn about the power of demons, but about the jealousy of God. 
You can't go there. You're going to be participating with demons. And you know what the demons are going to do to you? No. He says, you're going to make your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, jealous. This is spiritual adultery. The first and second of the Ten Commandments deal with this issue. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that uh, is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? Because it's stupid. No. Do, do you remember your Bible memory? Why does God say you cannot have other gods and don't make idols? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's the warning in this passage. Not the scary boogeyman demons. But the Corinthians... They thought they were stronger than the temptation to get sucked into false religion. They, they thought they were stronger than these worthless idols who have no eyes, no ears. Well, they've got eyes, but they can't see. They've got ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't do anything. They've got feet, but they can't walk. Read Psalm 115. They're ridiculous. They're nothing. We're stronger than they are. Paul says, are you stronger than God. So these sacrificial meals are not simply casual dining and family festivals. They're idolatrous fellowship with demons, their unfaithfulness to Christ, and they stir up the jealousy of the Lord. This text speaks to us about sacrificial meals, and I don't know about you, but I haven't really run into that issue lately, but I sure have run into a bunch of other ones, like the three that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon 42 minutes ago. So that college stu student who, while singing with her Christian choir in Europe, at a Catholic church, was invited to participate in communion. Should she participate? I suggest no. Because she would be participating in an abomination of Christ. That's not the gospel. Performing in a Catholic church with your choir is one thing, but celebrating Mass with them? That's a completely different situation. My family members, who's a police officer, encouraged to become that Jaffa Shriner. Should he become a member? I suggest no. Because clearly there's religious associations. We did some research and it comes to, we came to find out that uh, the Jaffa Shriners are an order of Freemasons, <coughs> Masonic Lodge. How about the member of our church who has been invited to his Hindu co-workers' wedding. Should he go? 
Miss a Hindu wedding. Hmm. Are you going to be asked to participate in a religious ritual? Are you just going to be observing? It's not so clear. At least not in my opinion. We talked through the issue. We decided that it's not as clear as we might hope for it to be. Supporting the marriage is certainly a good thing. But if he was asked to actually participate in some type of Hindu ritual, then he should abstain, which can make it awkward, can't it? These are the kinds of normal, everyday things that Christians, even today, deal with. The gospel has brought us into union with Christ. He is our husband. And it calls us, just as he is faithful to us, to be faithful to him in an exclusive relationship. And so, friends... Don't be involved with anything that has false religions because you too would be participating in idolatry. And what motivates us to not participate in these kinds of things? Our participation in true religion with the true Christ would cause us to easily shun all of those other things, ever how local and fun they may be. May God be glorified through us as we make clear our loyalties to Jesus Christ through how we live and how we make decisions. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you laid down your life as a sacrifice for us. And I, I thank you that your body was broken for us and that your blood was shed for us. We're about to celebrate that. It is our only hope in life and in death. And I pray this morning that as we celebrate here, we would also celebrate your gospel daily through the decisions that we make. Some of them very clear and easy. Some of them pretty complicated. But I pray that you would be glorified, that you would use us as a witness to the transforming power of your gospel in the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.